how are we doing? <laughs> Every time it's like, whoa. Well, that's good. The front row is really coming through. Uh, lots of descriptors up there. Um, so are we feeling like cold and rainy, or are we feeling warm and sunny? Okay, so reflecting. Warm and rainy. Okay. Little Seattle spring. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve Davidson students um, and the campus of Davidson College. Um, and let me tell you a little bit more about David, uh, Davidson College, no, RUF, at Davidson College. We, we exist for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the painfully shy and the proudly loud, for the student who gets every Davidson grant and memorial scholarship known to man, and for the student who just doesn't want to face all of that paperwork. And REF exists for those who aren't sure they believe in a God who is good, and for those who aren't sure they believe in anything or anyone else that is truly good. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks so much for coming. We're glad you're here. We hope you feel welcomed. Um, we hope you get to know RUF, and we hope RUF gets to know you. Um, and RUF is more than just me, or even the people who come up here. Uh, if someone looks really familiar, maybe, he, maybe they're laughing at the awkward jokes. They've probably been around, so uh, introduce yourself, but all, even better if that person could introduce yourself to a new person. That'd be great. We're really glad, especially if you're new, uh, that you're here. I know. Thanks for taking the time uh, on a busy night. All right. So this semester in large group, we've been looking at the life of David. Um, David is a historical person that, that who's, who lived around 1,000 B.C., which is like 3,000 years ago. And his life is described in First and Second Samuel and the beginning of First Kings. Uh, that's where you find it. Uh, David is a man, he's a human being, and he's so ordinary in so many ways. He's so much like us. He has big wins, he has big losses, he takes these giant risks, he sits silently, he gets sad and disappointed, and then he dances for joy. David is also so extraordinary, he's so not like us. First of all, we've got to confess, we're not ancient Near Eastern kings. I'm sorry to crush dreams up here already, Um, but we're not, we don't live in the Iron Age. Um, But also, more importantly, David is a name, uh, he's a figure of the Old Testament, but he's mentioned more times than anyone but Jesus in the New Testament. And there's a reason for that, because almost every time he's mentioned, he describes Jesus of Nazareth. For instance, King Jesus is sometimes called the offspring of David. And what's beautiful about our passage tonight is it's going to explain why that is. You're going to see how Jesus fulfills the promises of 2 Samuel 7, in a beautiful, historical, outside-of-ourselves way. And so um, I'm excited to unpack that with you. But really what I want you to get, want to get across is that G- David is more than a good or a bad example. David is a pointer to Jesus and to the salvation and the rescue there. And that's why our title of our series, the theme of our series, is the God after our own hearts. To get at that idea of David being more than a good or bad example. So context-wise, we're in the beginning of 2 Samuel. We have, we have gone through an Old Testament historical narrative like champs. Okay, So pat yourselves in the back. Um, 
the beginning of 2 Samuel is this really great transition where David goes from being a refugee on the run, he's the rightful king, and he's being persecuted and chased down by the wrongful king Saul, and all of a sudden he's finally at peace, he's finally having prosperity, he's finally uh, got in power. And so remember, he had 42 years, roughly, of living in the wilderness, a place of pain, a place of temptation, a place that just frankly felt totally out of control. And and all of a sudden, like that, David is in power and on the throne, in Jerusalem, in a palace made of cedar, and all of a sudden, he has his enemies all either defeated or dead around him. And so the question becomes, what does David do next? We've seen David in the wilderness. We've started to look at David as, a, as king in Jerusalem. But what does he do? What do we do when life calms down and we come into some success? That's kind of what these chapters are addressing. What does it look like to address God, not in times of desperation, but times of prosperity? And our passage tonight, 2 Samuel chapter 7, suggests that times like these can and will turn our thoughts towards God. Yet, God's response is oftentimes very surprising. Before we step into the surprise of God, let me pray once more, and then we'll get started. Father, I'm so glad that each and every one of these people is here. I'm so glad that we get to hear uh, what you'd have to say to us. And I pray for the vessel for my lips, which are unclean. And I pray that you would purify, your, through your word, um, your servant. I pray, Father, that um, my sins, um, my inadequacies, my insecurities would not get in the way of your power and your beauty and your glory. Uh, I pray that we would be frankly overwhelmed with a message that's too good to not change us. And I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes, and help us to taste and see that you are good. That's our prayer for this time. Set it apart. Help us to bring everything that we are here and to shelve nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in high school, my dad and I would oftentimes go fishing together. Look, you just have, I have to paint the scene for you. I lived in a city. Okay. Columbus, Ohio. Uh, my dad, if you know him, is not a sportsman. If you know me at all, I'm not a sportsman. I'm not an outdoorsman at all. Okay. But in good weather, for a lot of my high school time, we would, on a Saturday morning, find ourselves with a pole at a river or a lake. And I'm not really sure how the shared hobby developed, but I remember my dad waking me up extremely early on Saturday mornings gathering up all of the equipment necessary, whether it was fly fishing or real fishing. And then I remember my dad, um, and then my dad and I driving an hour, sometimes two hours, to some rural pocket of, of Ohio to find the right stream or the right lake uh, to do some fishing. Um, and I also remember that at those times, I thought I was doing him a favor. Okay. <laughs> I thought, you know, the old man wants to feel good about himself, right? He wants, to, he wants to feel good about being a dad. Maybe he's got some nostalgia. Maybe he's got some loneliness. He just needs his son to stand next to him in a stream and feel like he's really accomplishing something with his life. Okay, And I remember, uh, so even though I groaned about getting up really early on a Saturday, um, I would try to push aside my adolescent angst. 
and fish with my dad for a few hours. So I, I'm guessing that you all had something like this, whether it was a mother-daughter thing or a daddy-daughter thing or, or dad-son thing or whatever else, a uh, mother-son thing even. Uh, I guess I have to do all of the categories. Um, check, check, check. Okay, so uh, I've covered every, all my bases. Uh, you probably had some tradition that you kind of felt very similarly about that was sort of became a tradition that you look back with fondness at. Um, but when I reflect upon those fishing experiences, I now realize I had it all wrong. Completely wrong. I now realize that he was actually doing me a favor. My dad was doing me a favor. Now, maybe that's, I've realized that because I'm now a dad. Okay? And I think about Saturday mornings, and I think about all I really want to do is like be by myself with a cup of coffee, kind of like reading something, listening to something, watching something very slowly at my own pace. But I think more importantly, I think I've just gotten really honest about what high school is like for me the farther I get away from it. And the more honest I am about high school, the more I realize that I was a bit lonely and I was a bit of a homebody. You see, I was so busy trying to be successful, achieving with like newspaper editing and soccer and homework that my friends in school became more like kind of small talk colleagues and less like hangout friends. And so we didn't really see each other outside of Monday through Friday. And I think my dad saw this and he suggested fishing as a way to get me out of the house and get me around some other people. You see, there I was congratulating myself on getting up and getting dressed, thinking I was being a good sport on those chilly Saturday mornings. And there my dad was doing all the hard work, researching which streams were trout fed, which buying fly fishing rods and thigh high waders, and even trying to tie those microscopic lures that we would often have, oftentimes have to switch out because we caught a lot of tree fish when we fished. Okay? I wasn't very good at fly fishing. So, and I see now that I was not primarily doing something for my father on the Saturday morning, but that my father was primarily doing something for me. And this was David's takeaway in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Through the mouthpiece of God, through the prophet Nathan, David realizes that his kingship, his life, was not primarily about doing something for God. Instead, God was primarily doing something for David in his life and through his kingship. And wherever you are with God as a father figure, this should resonate. What if coming to RUF or going to church, studying hard or being kind to your roommate, what if these good things are not us doing favors to God and favors to the Davidson community? Instead, what if all these good things we're doing for God and for others, what if these good actions were actually the very places where God is favoring us? Let me put it this way, because I think it's a little bit confusing. We're going to unpack this pretty much for the rest of our time together. I think like King David, I sometimes get so caught up in the radical things I'm doing, or want to do for God, that I forget what Christianity is primarily about. Christianity is primarily about what God is doing and God's plans, not what I do and my plans, however well-intentioned these doings and plans are. Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the person.
person we address our prayers to because it's his work and not ours that counts the most. In the language of the passage tonight, Jesus is first and foremost building us a house and not the other way around. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 21, remind David and they remind us of a humbling but joyful truth. God is always working his steadfast love for his children. God is always working his steadfast love for his children. And this fact of the universe invites us to sit before the Lord and just be still. To the degree that we believe that God is at work with incredible kindness, incredible steadfastness to his children, we sit still before the Lord our God. Our passage describes God's work and our stillness in a story. The story has three sequential steps that, that move us from our busyness into God's rest. I don't want you to miss a single step. I don't want to miss a single step. First, in verses 1 through 7, we see a description of our well-meaning busyness. Then, in verses 8 through 17, we see the promise of God's humble and unstoppable work. And then finally, in verses 18 through 21, we see the invitation to our rest in God's presence. So we'll look at our busyness, we're going to look at God's work, and we're going to look at our rest in God's presence. So where we're going, that's what we're doing. Let's begin with the first, set, first eight verses, verses 1 through 7, and 2 Samuel's description of our busyness. And it's kind of surprising, isn't it? As I mentioned earlier, verse 1 tells us that life is actually going really great for David. Okay, He lives comfortably in a giant palace of stone and cedar. He lives peacefully in a time where all warfare has, has ceased around him. Well, at least temporarily has ceased, right? Because the next chapter he starts fighting again. It's therefore to David's credit that he decides yet again to turn to God and to do business with God. David chooses to embrace God as more than a Hail Mary pass in the wilderness of trouble. David wants to honor God in peacetime when things are going well for him. I mean, after all, think about what David has. Just think about it in American terms for a second. David has the wife, if not wives, plural. He's got a McBanchon made of cedar. Okay, he's got a cushy but very important job with lots of power and cool clothing. And David's living the ancient Near Eastern dream. Okay? He's living the fabled happily ever after that every little boy dreams about. Who, who minds sheep. But before we congratulate David and ourselves for caring about God when we're not inundated with tests or papers or extracurricular games or meetings, let's look at how David's mouth speaks out of the overflow of his heart in verse 2. Read along with me. It says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Perhaps you're thinking, Sid, what's wrong with that? David wants to do a nice thing for God. Lay off. What's the big deal? Why can't he build God a house? I mean, calm down up there. Okay? 
But if you peek ahead at God's response in verses 6 and 7, you'll see exactly why David and we misunderstand God. We misunderstand God's choices, and we misunderstand God's abilities. So we're looking at his choices and his abilities. God tells David in these verses, verses 6 and 7, that he chose to live in a tent. He chose to live in a tent because his people were living in tents. God wanted to live unsettled. He wanted to live without rest and not in a non-permanent home because his people, Israel, were unsettled and without a permanent home. He's God with us. He's a God who chooses even today to dwell here on earth and not just in heaven. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis puts it really well and asks us a question. He says, look, can you, see, can you not see the astounding condescension of our God here? He is the God who will not enjoy rest until he gives his people rest. The God who stoops down to share the hardships of his people. The God who is not ashamed that he has been traveling around in a tent with his people. Do you see how close he is to you even now? So the God of the universe makes a surprisingly humble and intimate choice. But he's also much more able than David and we give him credit for. You see, verses 6 through 7 make it clear that David assumed that God wasn't able to build himself a house. That the God of the universe needed David's help. As if David's house wasn't actually built for David by God. And this pride is where David's culture comes into play. In the ancient Near East, kings controlled their gods. And actually it was a power move in the ancient Near East for a king to build a temple to his god right after he'd established his dynasty. Building your god a temple was a cultural religious guarantee of future blessings. And this is why the Lord, the God, the true God, vetoes David's seemingly good intentions. This is why God, in his kindness, offers, David, offers to build David a house first. He doesn't want us to pity him when he condescends to dwell with us. He doesn't want to let us forget that he's in charge and working for our good, even when we feel most successful and most powerful. We're not working for God's good. We can't control God. He isn't a dog we pet to get a lick. He isn't a lamp that we rub the right way to get three free wishes. And this is really hard to remember in our cultural context, isn't it? Here we are at a highly successful, highly selective liberal arts college with hundreds of staff people working to serve us. Food, beautify our campus, do our laundry. Okay, remember I went here. Okay, so before you feel like I'm throwing you under the bus, okay, I'm throwing myself. When things go well, when things work out according to our plans, it's very hard not to think that God needs our hard work and our talents. We get so embarrassed, don't we? We get so embarrassed when God chooses not to defend himself yet again in the classroom. We get so embarrassed at his seeming inability to stand up for himself on the hall. But even more so, in our well-meaning zeal, we launch into more service projects, more peer tutoring, more library time, more lunch one-on-ones. And 
even more family phone calls to make sure we're that great son or daughter. All of these things are good things, but they become soul-deadening if we do them to please God. Or even, if that's not where you are, to try to be a good person to the world. We are often building God a house so that others will adore us, adore us at a distance. Or perhaps so that God will like us enough to give us what we really want. And we know this is happening. I think my case is true by the way that we feel about our days. Just think about it for a second. When did studying lose the joy of discovery? When did being a good friend overwhelm liking that other person? When did life in general begin to feel like a constant attempt to avoid making mistakes? To maintain people's praise of us? To fight off that creeping, surging feeling of failure? But listen to the good news. According to verses 8 through 17, this is not how life is supposed to work. Because this is not how God works. This is not how life is supposed to work, because this is not how God works. Eight, verses 8 through 17 promise God is working out of his humble love, always and forever. And that's what point two of our outline is getting at. You see, God doesn't respond to David's pride and our self-sufficiency with a speech of shame. He doesn't go, tisk tisk, shame on you. What does he do instead? He promises incredibly detailed kindness. The kind of kindness that leads us to embrace his plans instead of our own. In verses 8 through 17, God is the subject of 23 different actions. He blesses David and by virtue of David being the offspring of Jesus, us, 10 different ways. And all of these actions that God does are not our actions or David's actions. And they are completely and totally undeserved. You see, the true David, the future offspring of David, Jesus Christ, has once and for all pleased God for us by his perfect life and his substitutionary death on a cross in a historical moment roughly 2,000 years ago. And the more we trust in this historical fact, the more, or excuse me, the less we feel like what people think about us matters. So God responds to our human misunderstanding and our misguided busyness with Jesus. What the Bible is at pains to call grace. But I love the way that theologian Robert Capon helpfully and eloquently defines grace for us. And it's a little bit of a long quote, but it is gorgeous. So hold tight. The life of grace is not an effort on our part to achieve a goal we set for ourselves. It's a continually renewed attempt simply to believe that someone else has done all of the achieving that's needed and to live in a relationship with that person whether we achieve or not. If that doesn't seem much like much to you, you're right. It isn't. As a matter of fact, the life of grace is even less than that. It's not even our life at all, but the life of someone else rising like a tide in the ruins of our death. You can feel you can fail utterly and still live a life of grace. 
You can fold up spiritually, morally, and intellectually and still be safe. Because at the very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection and the life, that's just, that just makes you his cup of tea. So again, you can fail utterly and still live a life of grace. You can fold up morally, spiritually, intellectually and still be safe because at the very worst, that all that makes you is dead and for him who is the resurrection and the life, that's his cup of tea. Okay? Do you understand how counterintuitive that message is? Do you understand how against the grain of achieving is believing Davidson College that is? God restores curiosity to our learning. He restores joy to our friendships. He restores freedom to life by reminding us that life isn't about us. It's about Jesus and his life. We can succeed. We can fail. And either way, Jesus will have always achieved for us. Humming in the background of the basement of the library between the wall panels of First Belk, between the houses on Patterson Court, is the finished work of Jesus' resurrection. Therefore, to borrow an image from Capon, we can by faith play the piano pieces of our lives. Think about life as playing the piano. okay? In order that we can actually hear the music and not just worry about the mistakes. Because at the end of the day, God's grace makes every infirmity an occasion for glory. And really, this is the idea of grace that's operating throughout verses 8 through 17. These verses catalog the many ways that God gives us good and needful things through his son, Jesus, the offspring of David. If we are God's sons and daughters in the true David, verse 14... God gives us a name. What's in a name? It's a righteous reputation. Unearned and undeserved. He gives us a place. A peaceful habitation. A fiercely protected forever home. For those of us who far too often feel in the teeth of life's hardness. This deep dislocation. This deep discomfort. Finally, if we believe that the eternal king is Jesus, the son of David, God gives us rest. Spiritual comfort here on earth, but even physical property in the new heavens and the new earth. And verses 14 through 15 clarify the nature of God's gracious promise. Verse 15 emphasizes it clearly. God will show David, he will show us his steadfast love. In the original Hebrew, that word is chesed. Chesed. (laughs) Chesed is unconditional love. That's what it literally means in the Hebrew. In Jesus, we are God's children. We did not earn or choose God, the Father's love. Just like we can't earn or choose our parents' love. Right? And according to Sally Lloyd-Jones, Chesed can also be translated as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking Always and forever love. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So again, if if in Jesus we are God's son or daughter, 
This means that we will not and we cannot ever be disowned or forsaken. Ever. Yet for all the security of God's fatherly nurturing love, verse 14 warns us that in addition to God shouting, yes, your love, into our insecurities, resounding, resounding all over the heavens, he must sometimes tell us in a whisper of intimacy, no, you can't have your way all the time. And that's what love is. Love looks like discipline. So while God's love for his people is unconditional and not based on anyone's performance but Christ's, it does have a conditional enjoyment. That is, we can sometimes deaden our souls to God's grace through busyness or ignoring his promises to us. And that's why verses 18 through 21 are so important for us. We're transitioning to point three here. Okay? Our rest in God's presence. Because God's love erodes even our attempts at self-sufficiency. God's love erodes even our attempts at self-sufficiency. So before we move to what God does in verse 4, in the, these four verses, I mean, look at what he doesn't do. Excuse me. Let, before we look at what David does in these four verses, let's look at what David doesn't do. What does David not do? He doesn't build a house for God. Right? He doesn't. He ceases trying to earn God's favor. He ceases to please God, and he just sits there. That's literally what it says. He sits before the Lord. Verse 18. David did not want to miss God and his man-made plans for God. There's a strategic stillness at work here that we could really glean a lot from. I could really glean a lot of that. This is this has preached to me in so many ways. God's love speaks into our anxious Davidson fears. God's love speaks into our fears that we aren't doing enough, that we aren't busy enough, that we aren't enough. For God, for others, and for ourselves. God tells us in the midst of this pressure to be still and know that he is God. To faithfully do nothing. Faithfully drop work. Faithfully skip an appointment. Faithfully skip a meeting. Why? Because we sometimes have to acknowledge our daily dependence on his grace. To remember moment by moment our need for his, his chesed love. But look, cultivating the stillness is so difficult to do. Some of you know, this is the thing I love asking a one-on-one. Take an hour this week and do nothing. And it's death to everyone I recommend it to. No one's gotten through it. The farthest I got in a whole semester was 45 minutes. Someone got to 45 minutes and quit. Okay? Here's the thing. What do you do? Verses 18 through 21 are so helpful. They give you a tutorial on what the Bible means by being still and knowing God is God. It means, oftentimes, entering God's presence through the non-action of prayer. You see, prayer doesn't produce anything. Okay, Prayer doesn't produce anything. It takes the universe out of our hands and places it firmly in God's hands. And we answer God in prayer. We read what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in passages like this. And we pray through those words, like David, in incredible humility. Because David refers to God and God's actions 17 different times in his prayer. Okay, While seeking for the truth of God's promises, 
in his life. To see them, not to do them. Look, a simple takeaway from all of this stuff is this, okay? Takeaway from all of this. Try doing nothing before we go out and do something. Okay? You've probably heard the saying, don't just stand there, do something. Right? 2 Samuel 7 is saying the opposite. Don't just do something, stand there first. Let me end with a story about fishing. <laughs> Martin Luther, the man who famously began the Protestant Reformation okay, in Europe, he began Protestantism, part of Christianity, he had a friend and a student named Philip Melanchthon. And like, if you ever really want to go into like a series of really great stories, Luther and Melanchthon's stories are like great. Okay? 16th century... Okay, but this this book called Table Talk basically just like records what Luther says over beer at dinner for like probably twenty or thirty years. Anyway, there's one account here that one day Melanchthon asked Luther to spend the day with him discussing the governance of the world. Like, how does that work? Luther looked at Melanchthon, then he looked out the window at the sunshine, and he reportedly said to him, Philip, let's go fishing instead. We can leave to God the governance of the world for yet another day. The point is this. When we understand that God is in charge, that God is always at work, we will be more and more free to stop working. We will finally and fully rest when we start to believe, when we start to be still in God's forever love. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this truth to us, um, to me, really. Um, I I just pray that you'd help us to take it to heart, that this wouldn't become another thing to do. Uh, It would be a thing not to do. That this would be, feel like fishing when it's a nice day, instead of feeling like another activity to run to. I pray, Father, that you'd be with all of our hearts. Um, I don't know where we are. Some of us are in the throes of midterm still. Some of us are just in this weird gap between things. Um, Some of us are about to graduate. Some of us have a long time till then. I pray that you would meet each and every one of us with your incredible mercy, your incredible grace, and that you would direct our eyes upon a life we did not live. We ask these things in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.